listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. Joining me today to discuss the new documentary film, Planet of the Humans, is IER's senior economist, David Kreutzer. Prior to joining IER, Dr. Kreutzer spent several years as a senior research fellow in energy economics and climate change at the Heritage Foundation. In 2017, he left Heritage for two months to serve on the presidential transition team at the EPA. Dr. Kreutzer also taught economics for 23 years at James Madison University and three years before that at Ohio University. He's published in peer-reviewed journals such as the Journal of Political Economy, Climate Change Economics, the National Tax Journal, Economic Inquiry, and Applied Economics, and he's written for several popular publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the Orange County Register. Dr. Kreutzer, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, I'm glad to do it. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so you joined IER uh, just prior to the onset of this pandemic. So this is sort of, uh, we met briefly, I think, yeah. at, uh, at an event, but this is sort of the first opportunity we've had to, to chat. And uh, right, this, right, right. this new documentary, Planet of the Humans, it covers a lot of issues that you focus on in your career. So I thought just sort of getting our reactions to the film might be a good way to introduce you to IER's audience and uh, just talk about a lot okay. of the issues that we cover at IER. Yeah, no, no. The you know the, this um, documentary was really amazing coming from the the people that it came from. Uh, you know, Michael Moore, f- famous radical documentarian, uh, was the producer, and the uh, the director and co-producer was an ardent environmentalist. And you know what they come up with is that green energy is not that green, not that reliable. You know, uh, maybe it's not the uh, panacea that the green energy people make it out to be. You know, my, my, my feelings about the film were sort of mixed, but I think one of the main things that gets right is just the fact that the political discussion around green energy has always sort of been, um, it's been unbalanced, but then also it just has always overlooked the trade-offs and some of the things that are so- associated with renewable energy that, you know, often go overlooked. So the, the film, they cover sort of the intermittency issue, land use issues, went into sort of some of the issues with companies that claim uh, to be using 100% renewable energy, how that right. isn't really <laughs> up to, uh, isn't exactly what's going on there. It's not, it's not legit. Right. It's not legit. So, People, you know, all these, the, you know, they, they talked about Apple, Tesla, and then they showed that uh, you know these businesses and the factories were still connected to the grid, because you know the problem with solar is nighttime, and you know when 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 the sun goes down, clouds come out, you know you 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 don't get any energy from them. And I, I want to say I'm also, I had very mixed feelings about uh, about the planet of the humans, in particular their their prescription for a solution to uh, a problem that I think they've wildly exaggerated is depopulation, and that's you know just old Malthusian, uh, you know, claptrap stuff. And so I, yeah, I don't, I think ultimately I really don't like their solution any, uh, any better than the green people, but they did it. They did a good job, not only showing the problems of green energy, but I think where they really ruffled feathers was showing the money in the green energy business. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of money on, you know, even just for the, uh, the nonprofits, but there's plenty of profit in there as well. Yeah, those are all good points. I think, you know, certainly on the population issue, obviously, my view is that they come at this issue from the perspective of minimizing human impact as being the highest moral good or um, is right. being sort of 
uh, just just sort of adopting that environmental perspective. I think you're right about their focus on population. I think a lot of times when I talk about uh, these issues, people don't really appreciate actually how extreme some of the policy conclusions and some of the um, the the path forward that these people sort of view a lot of times adopt things like population control and stuff. And those policy questions aren't, it's it's something that we sort of talk about as like policy ideas that were discussed in the past. But actually, if you look in the literature, you see things like families who have new children, people describe that as like being a negative externality. And um, it's it's really sort of an extreme uh, view on things. Well, you know, it's just an echo of, you know, what was going on when I was much younger which was the ZPG, Zero Population Growth Movement of the late 60s and the 70s, and even into the 80s. And the, you know, all of the arguments that are given in the human uh, planet of the humans, you know, it's, it's exactly that stuff that's been proven so wrong that uh, it's amazing that people are still making the same arguments. You know, back, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older than you are. And, uh, you know, I, I fell head over heels for the, you know, the ZPG arguments at first, and then obviously it became clear that they, they were wrong. But back in the 60s, they were talking about, you know, you look at India, you know, at that time, 600 million people, uh, starvation was a huge problem. Um, people uh, like Paul Ehrlich, you know, uh, with a population bomb, people at the Club of Rome, saying the earth doesn't have the resources to handle the population that we have. It's going to be a catastrophe just in a couple of decades. Well, fast forward, India has twice as many people. They're exporting food. Uh, you know, the, the standard of living worldwide has gone, grown dramatically. You know, the, the population has gone up. Uh, education levels have gone up. Uh, the amount of calories that people get per capita has gone up. And so they're just absolutely wrong. But it was, it was such a compelling argument, you know, if you just look at exponential growth rates and you say we have fixed resources. But they're wrong. You know, we, we have ingenuity. We come up with a green revolution, all sorts of things. So, and that's where the, the people in climate are wrong as well. They, they, they don't seem, see human adaptability as, as uh, being very, uh, very strong, whereas I think it is. And certainly the, the Julian Simon point of more people equaling more minds, um, which sort of gets into the adaptability aspect of things, is, is also being lost uh, right. still in the environment, right, right. it and, seems. Yeah. yeah, and when, there, when you, know, you start to have, a, you know, that look like we we're going to have a shortage of copper, uh, copper wire became very expensive, and you have fiber optics, which make copper wire obsolete for the most part uh, in terms of communication. Um, and so, yeah, you, you just have, you know, human progress and people are saying, yeah, we've had a lot of human progress, but we don't expect it to continue. You keep hearing that one over again. You know, like, yeah, every bit of history we have shows it's going to get better, but we think it's going to get worse. And, and it's because they've, you know, they've just learned what an exponential growth rate means. And they, they don't understand all of the intricacies of, uh, you know, of markets and of human behavior and, you know, adaptability and ingenuity and all those other things. Sure. And something you sort of touched on that I think the film also yeah. gets right is the way the film portrays sort of the big players in the environmental movement and especially right. their connection to the renewable and energy industry. You know, a lot of times these groups are portrayed as being sort of like the underdog uh, who are only <laughs> motivated by, you know, their pure love of the environment. And certainly yeah. there certainly there are people uh, I, I would say a majority of people that are involved in those organizations care very deeply about the environment. But uh, I, gu- I guess if you could just talk a little bit to 
the way that the film lift the veil sure. off of what's going on there. Yeah, no, there, there, you know, and there, there's big money in nonprofit, believe it or not, but there's also big money in for profit. Um, so let me look first at sort of the green energy and, and who can make money and how much money they can make. One of the solar projects that they covered fairly thoroughly in the uh, Planet of the Humans, um, you know, deserved to be raked over the coals just as they did, and that was the Ivanpah solar plant in uh, the Mojave Desert. And Ivanpah is a solar thermal plant. That is, they have a bunch of mirrors that they focus on a liquid at the top of a tower that heats up, that drives a steam generator just like a coal plant would. And the problem, again, with solar is nighttime. So what they do at nighttime is they burn natural gas to keep the, the, the water hot so that when the sun comes up, they can immediately say it's generating electricity. And so all of the gas that they burnt gets discounted, and they get to sell every kilowatt uh, as a as a as a green solar kilowatt, which makes a big difference in California because you get to sell it at a much higher price, and it helps the utilities meet certain requirements for uh, renewable energy portfolio standards and so on. But if you look at who the backers were, okay, so who were the owners of Ivanpah? Well, when the thing got going, it was Google, General Electric, Chevron, BP, State Oil, Morgan Stanley. Draper Fisher, Jervetson, and, and on and on and on. The, uh, I looked up the, at the, this was a few years ago when it, when it first came online. The backers had a trillion dollars worth of market capital. I think it's, it's well above that now. Um, nevertheless, the, the federal government gave them a grant of $500 million and a loan guarantee of one, over $1.5 billion. Now, if Morgan Stanley can't find capital for a project without the government helping, maybe it's not a good project. But these, you know, these people are in there. They're, you know, they're they're probably saying they're green. Uh, they want to look green, uh, but it's the money that's green. And so there. And at the same time, if you look at some of the nonprofits, for instance, the Sierra Club. I remember my family was a member of the Sierra Club back in the 60s and 70s, and it was for outdoors people, people that like to go hiking and so on. And the pictures that they had in their magazine were beautiful pictures of redwood forests and so on. Within a few years after we joined. They started to see pictures of clear-cut redwood forests. They found out that there was you could generate more membership by getting people scared and drumming up problems with the environment instead of talking about the nice parts of the environment. So you, you can get more members for these great big green organizations by creating a catastrophe to which you have a solution. So if you come up with an existential threat, which is what they're trying to say climate is, then, of course, existential threats give you blank check you know, authority to come up with solutions. And uh, so, so you have that dynamic as well. And I, again, I agree with you. I, I suspect that the vast majority of Sierra Club members are very serious about their environmentalism. They're not looking to make money. As a matter of fact, they're giving money to help it and so on. But I think to some extent they're being used. Um, so yeah, lots of money there. You know, we, we tend to think of nonprofits as being sort of like a third sector of um, of our society where you have, you know, you have political things and then you have market oriented things and then um, sort of civil society. But when those groups sort of take on more of a politically bent, I guess, mission, that framework almost doesn't seem to be the the best way of looking at it. With these environmental groups, it seems like, like maybe we should yeah. think of them more as political entities than sort of, you know, civil society 
organizations, I guess. Right, right. You know, and, and you know, the, the, we have a democracy. People are allowed to get together to express their views, and, I, you know, I agree with that. I, I think people need to look at things uh, a little more clear-eyed, though, um, and understand that somebody that says they're to defend the environment, um, you know, maybe there's something else going on there as well, or they or they may be spinning things. Because, you know, if you, if you take a straight... Uh, sort of economics, political, public choice view, you know, what, what is it that an organization wants to do, wants to stay in business and wants to grow, whatever. How do you get more members? Okay. Uh, you don't get more members by saying everything's fine. You know, you can get more members by saying, you know, hey, things are terrible and we need to do, here's our plan. Uh, people need to listen to us. You know, if you give us more money, we're, we're going to see that they do. And so, you know, and that's, you know, you can, lots of nonprofits, of course, are, 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 are wonderful. Um, and, but we need to be, we need to be skeptical of, especially skeptical of uh, existential threats. You know, they, they, they keep popping up, you know, someday we'll have some. Uh, maybe, but you know they they deserve a, a special scrutiny. And so when you look at climate, for instance, you know there's there's currently there's no trend for the past century. No trend in hurricanes, no trend in tornadoes, no trends in floods, no trend in uh, droughts. Uh, nevertheless, every time there's a hurricane, flood, drought, or tornado, it's presented as being caused by CO2 emissions from humans. And there's there's the trend's not there. Now, will it happen at some point? Could be, but that's not what they're presenting. They're saying we're, we have an existential threat. We already see it. You hear that over and over and over. We already see it. And when they say we already see it, they start talking about whatever the latest uh, you know, weather disaster was. When you look at trends, the trends aren't there. Okay, so you have this, this non-existent existential threat that they've done a phenomenal job of getting most people to believe in. And then they, they have to come up with a solution, which costs a lot of money uh, and a lot of freedom. Sure. And obviously, one of the trends that they don't talk about is climate-related deaths. Uh, there's that sort of infamous chart that we like to use that that shows, you know, yeah. because of technology, because of the things that uh, our energy sources go into, you know, it makes us right. a lot safer and protects us from the dangers of uh, a climate, which... Uh, you know, because of hurricanes and things, does present yeah. very real dangers to humans. Right, right. You know, a, a, a wealthier country is a more resilient country. You know, you, you see that when, it, when there's a hurricane that hits a very poor country, they get devastated, or an earthquake in a very poor country. Um, even though the, the dollar damage may not be as great, the time it takes for them to recover is usually longer. And you look at, the, you know, the buildings. So we, we've put a phenomenal amount of, of new building in the past 30, 40 years along the coast especially, you know, the, the warm coast down the, the southeast part of the United States and in the Gulf, because that's where people like to live. Uh, and so, yeah, when you have a hurricane hit a billion dollars worth of real estate, it's likely to do more damage than if it hits uh, $100,000 worth of real estate. But when you look at the percentage damage in terms of, you know, income and so on, it's gone way down because we're building better buildings and people are more resilient. They can get in cars and move. They don't have to be there. The, we can have, you know, very expensive uh uh, responses, you know, where we we have convoys of trucks bringing food and generators and so on very rapidly. You know, you're not going to see that in a poor country. So uh, that's one of the reasons that that, that the uh, we're much safer uh, from environmental disasters than we were a century ago. Yeah, one of the other things I thought the film did a good job of showing was just when it comes to green energy, the fact that these technologies are pretty dependent on fossil fuel resources. 
but then also that constructing wind turbines and solar panels and stuff. And we discussed this a little bit, but you know, these are industrial processes too. And, you know, I, right. I'm hesitant to sort of bash, bash you, industrial you, processes. Right, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> but, no I, I, I don't want to either, but if you're, if you're saying industrial processes are bad, therefore we need wind and solar, you know, uh, you know, they, they, they pulled the curtain back on that one. Uh, you know, a, a wind turbine has, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tons of concrete and hundreds and hundreds of tons of steel. And of course, you know, anytime you have a motor with a magnet, the new magnets are going to have these rare earth metals, which sometimes aren't so rare as they sound. Um, you know, and they're, you know, they're going to be mined. You know, we can do mining very nicely, or we can, you know, some countries don't do it very well. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a question about that, but. Uh, you know the, the 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 rare earth metals that that come out of the ground for electric cars and and wind turbines are you know just as nasty or just as nice as the rare earth metals that come out for the generators in a in a coal plant or or a nuclear plant or a gas plant. You know all of them have magnets in their generators, but to to pretend which I think they've really done a uh, the the environmental groups have done a good job. They say things like you know the sun is free it is unlimited. And you know the wind is free, and so on. You see pictures of flowers and meadows and whatnot. Um, yeah, that's that's that that doesn't get you any electricity to the grid. You need to have some some hardcore metal and uh, concrete and so on to deliver it. Seems like there's a, a good amount of PR that focuses on just you know highlighting the best aspects of renewable sources, and then you know only pointing out maybe externalities or something from fossil fuels. And that's the conversation around energy, in my opinion. It it very rarely leaves that framework where we say okay well like let's open up wind and solar to the same sort of scrutinies that we apply to fossil fuel technology and things yeah sure yeah yeah no and i and i you know i think they 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 should um you know one of the things that uh, has blocked a lot of uh projects in the past is the you know the endangered species act and you look at you know does it have an impact on any of these numbers of threatened or endangered species, and you have to do, you know, um, mitigation uh, projects and so on. Um, and, and some of the environmental projects have also been blocked by environmental rules, just like that. But you you look at, uh, you know, the, the California condor, golden eagles, you know, which are especially the condors especially rare, um, and you know they they may end up being threatened by these wind farms. The, the big raptors, you know, didn't evolve in a world of uh, 450 foot tall wind turbines whose blades at the end are going, you know, the tips of the blades, you know, it looks like they're moving pretty slowly, but they're 300 feet across. And so the tip speed is in hundreds of miles per hour. And so a bird, you know, doing circling around, circling around, just not adapted to that and they get hit. Now, how many, you know, uh, if it were an oil or gas plant, it would be too many. So it's a wind turbine, they get, they seem to get a pass. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't want to say that you know we we need to get everything focused on the endangered species act because i think that's been abused um but you know we shouldn't pretend that they don't have this impact just because they're wind or solar plants you know and then just one thing i would highlight about the film too is i'm from michigan and you know michael moore is sort of a important cultural figure there and pretty familiar with his films and um, there's been some criticism of the film saying that you know the examples are sort of dated the um particularly the, the example of uh, when they're plugging the electric car into the grid. Um, a lot of the 
uh, the coal plants that the film points out at the time, those have been replaced with natural gas and stuff. So I, I do think that, you know, there is some legitimate criticism about the film, just the fact that some of it's a little bit dated, but directionally, right. you know, the, the, the criticisms are, are correct. I guess, just, do you have any thoughts there about... Um, yeah, yeah. Right, right. You know, the, I, I, I suspect, you know, that the, the, was, it was a great feed there where they're plugging in. It was the older version you know, the, the few years back of the, the, I can't remember, it was the Chevy Volt or the Bolt, I think, whichever one. It was a plug-in. And, um, you know, they asked, where's the electricity coming from? And the, and the the GM executive said, well, from that building. She didn't know exactly what they were, you know, thinking. Then she caught on. She says, oh, it's from the grid. I don't know where they get their electricity. So they finds a, a board member from the local utility. And at that time, it was 90% coal. Now, I suspect you're right that that's gone considerably down and the gas has come up. Nevertheless, you know, I, you know, I go by the Tesla you know, dealership from time to time, and they have on the front, you know, instead of a regular license plate, because it's a dealership, they, they don't have to put uh, a Virginia plate on the front, and they have zero emissions. Well, yeah, I mean, zero emissions there. You know, my gasoline car has zero emissions in the front. It's only on the back that it has emissions. So, you know, where do you get the electricity? All right. Now, if you look in Virginia, it's overwhelmingly natural gas and nuclear. Uh, with, with some coal, and you know, coal is about equal to the, the renewables right now. Um, but it's you know, it's uh, two thirds or more from natural gas and from from nuclear. So uh, you know, nuclear doesn't have air emissions, but most of the greens for some reason don't like it. But natural gas is you know, is much better than uncontrolled coal. But of course, we don't have uncontrolled coal anymore. We have coal with all sorts of pollution controls on it. Um, but it's still not zero emissions, you know, and the, the, and cars have plenty of controls on them. So I think it, I think it's actually, it may seem dated that 90% might be too high for the coal mix in, in there, but it, people don't understand that the electricity to run these electric cars comes from power plants, which are overwhelmingly still right now uh, fueled by, by gas and coal uh, and, and some nuclear. So that, that, you know, that's worth pointing out. You know, it may be good. Electric cars may make sense, all right, um, but not because they have zero emissions, because they don't have zero emissions. Okay, you need to, you need to understand that, all right. When don't and you you see the you know the vanity license plates on the electric cars make it very clear that people do not understand where the electricity comes from. I think we're in some agreement here that you know our feelings are sort of mixed about the film. Um, I guess you know maybe a good place okay. to to end on would be just. It, if you were to recommend watching the film to someone or um, someone came up to you with no real, you know, previous knowledge about energy, what would you say to them just before going into watching the film? And Well, you know, films are visual things. They're, they're not, they're not data driven. And, you know, none of Michael Moore's, you know, other things were any of the Hollywood films on, you know, various disasters and, you know, uh, you know so they're all, they, they do appeal to emotion. Uh, and so everybody's got to be aware of that. But nevertheless, you know, the images here, um, you know, they, they didn't concoct any like, like Fox did with uh, his, his Gaslands um, uh, documentaries where he actually made up scenes. You know, these, nobody said that these scenes weren't real. They're all real. The clear-cut forest for the biomass, that's real. Um, you know, they, the, the, the broken mirrors out west, you know, that's real. The area, that, you know, the desert's not just sand. You know, there's, there's stuff living out there. Um, you know, those, those are all real. And I think 
you know, maybe say, okay, look, take these things out. Now go look at the numbers. Maybe this would be a motivation to say, hey, you know, we have been a little bit misled, uh, maybe a lot misled by the environmental impact of so-called green energy and say that this might be a spur to get you to go, you know, actually start look at the numbers. And uh, Hey, I recommend going to the Institute of Energy Research for that. Yeah, that's certainly my hope. Uh, it certainly seems like an opportunity to open a conversation with, you know, people who we generally don't see eye to eye on yeah. uh, a lot of things. But um, yeah, hopefully it does open up that conversation. And, um, you know, I think that's a good place to end it on. So um, I guess today's okay. been Dr. Kreutzer, IER's new senior economist. Dr. Kreutzer, thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.